I can't believe it, but it's Tuesday, July 27th, the final Tuesday in the month of July. The macro setup, I'm joined as always by my dear friend, Dan Nathan. Today's macro setup is being brought to you by our presenting sponsors, Plural, Nadex, the leading U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and of course, knockouts. And also we're going to be joined by Chris Vecchio, a senior strategist at Daily FX. So wait for him because it's going to be hot. And of course, our friends at Open Exchange, they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Dan, you can tell I'm a little um, <laughs> animated today. How are you on this fine You're day? a little fired up. What I always love when we read the Nadex is, is the knockouts. You get excited about that. Oh, I and love ba- that. You know, back in the financial crisis, I worked on a big derivatives desk, um, you know, and it was really funny because knockouts were, were things that, that a lot of traders kept a very close eye on and things were moving around in a very volatile fashion and usually into some expiration. So that was always fun. So I get a little geeked up when I hear you get excited about the word knockout. But guy, I know why you're excited. We're on why the macro that? setup, but this is kind of like the Super Bowl for tech earnings this week, for, for market earnings. We don't even have to say tech anymore. These five stocks, you know what they are. Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, right? They're all reporting this week. They make up 25% of the S&P 500. They make nearly 50% of the NASDAQ 100. I think at their highs recently, about $10 trillion in market cap, which is truly astounding. And what they have to say, forget about what they did last quarter. It really is about what they have to say about forward guidance. That's going to dictate the stock market over the next few weeks. No doubt about it. So I can do that math. Five companies out of 500 is 1%. That 1% <laughs> makes up 25%. It's like an SAT question. But what is your point? Your point is this is extraordinarily important for the health of the S&P 500 and the broader market. So although this is the macro setup, we're getting a little micro here because they matter. And I was when I was a kid, Dan, I had to read something. We used to get it actually delivered to us, the Wall Street Journal. Love the publication. The ink got on your hands. You get all black ink on your hands. Guys on the train and gals used to wear gloves so they wouldn't get the ink on their shirts. But I digress. But stock slip with tech earnings on tap. Spinal tap, by the way, you should go with the blockbuster this weekend and rent it. Great movie. But Results are due. And we got Apple. I think we're going to look at that chart. I mean, that's the granddaddy of them all in terms of what we're looking at. But it all sort of leads us to the first chart we have to look at is the S&P 500, which is extraordinarily important. You drew the lines, Dan, lower left to upper right. We're in this channel. You look at this. We know what's on deck. What are you saying to yourself, Dan Nathan? Yeah, I think what's important about this channel is that it's getting narrower and narrower, right? So we're we're getting to a point where there's going to be some sort of tension building as we kind of get to the upper end of that resistance, or we kind of go back towards um, that support. We did break that support briefly on last Monday's sell-off, but it did catch some support at the 50-day moving average. We talked about that last week. That's been a level where it has been violated on these sell-offs, but we haven't, I think we're going on, Guy, 181 days or so um, where we haven't had a peak-to-trough decline of 5%. Sooner or later, that's going to resolve itself. I know that there's a line on that chart that you're really focused on. Um, The 200-day moving average that has been rising. Talk to me about how we get there. Yeah, well, it's rising each day by about five or so points. So, you know, today it's 39.25. Obviously, tomorrow will be 39.30 and so on and so so on, like that Clairol Herbal Essence commercial. But why am I focused on it? Because we haven't seen it seemingly forever. And the longer we stay away from that, the more standard deviations we get away from the 200-day the more inclined I believe we're going to get there and we're going to get there rapidly. And this is the week that's going to sort of tell the tale. I would submit 
that this is the most important week for earnings we've seen in terms of what it's going to mean for the broader market um, in quite some time. And I think it could really sort of set us up for the next six to nine months in the broader market. We're in this channel. We traded down the 50-day moving average. We talked about it last week on the macro setup, the fact that we basically traded down to 42.30 or so and bounced in a meaningful way. Next time down, I'm not convinced we're going to hold, and I do think we're going to violate it, and we'll see what happens. And I think it's going to be on the back of great earnings, but lousy price action. We'll see. But that 39.25 level is absolutely in the crosshairs as we get through this week, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, I think it's important to remember. I just you know, referenced the fact that it's been you know 180 days since we've had a 5% correction. Go back to last August and September 2nd, the high in the S&P 500. It went from 3,600 in a month down to 3,200. You can do the math there. I mean, just because it hasn't happened in a long time doesn't mean it's not going to happen again. And it could happen even in the face of good earnings and guidance. But this is why I want to take this to the next card, uh, guy. This is the the RSP, this is the equal weight S&P um, ETF here. And you see that channel that we've been in, what just, just really simply, all it tells you is that those massive names that broke out the market cap weighted index, right, have been doing all the heavy lifting. We've seen a lot of rotations in a lot of areas of the S&P 500, industrials, financials, some commodity related names that are off considerably home builders from the recent highs. But those five names have been dragging up the major indices. Really important. I mean, this to me tells the tale. This looks, by the way, hauntingly like sort of the small cap, the RTY, the Russell, depending on what you want to. And it's been basically sideways in this channel since March. And that 146 level on the downside, that green horizontal line, that's been support. Again, it's going to be very meaningful to watch if we can't get through this on the upside. I don't think we will. What does that downside look at? And what happens to this equal weight if we break 146? I would submit it's going to be a pretty slippery slope, but this is one you absolutely have to have on your screen if you're paying attention to markets, Dan, Nathan. No doubt about it. We'll just look, look at the NDX quickly, the NASDAQ 100. And like we said, those five names make up nearly 50% of the weight of the NDX. You can also see it's bounding up against that um, technical resistance from the September uh, 2020 highs. Just do the math or just, you know, connect the dots there. And we're almost got there. You know, it's an interesting guy that we've had a couple sell-offs, some, some sharp sell-offs in, in the NASDAQ um, over the last year. Go back to March from the February highs. We kind of, um, I think that was near nearly a 10% peak to trough decline. And we definitely um, did get unchanged on the year. And I think that was the most important thing. But here we are, you know, now up, you know, 14 um, or so percent in in the NDX, um, a move back below 14,000 to that uptrend. And you see where that 200-day moving average is um, a bit below there, like 13.2 or so. Um, That would be a meaningful correction at this point. Again, no one can foresee it at this point. Um, And, you know, if there are any disappointments, you and I are sitting here saying, all those names are going to have really rosy outlooks and good results, um, but any disappointments could help kind of get that bowl, uh, ball rolling down the hill a little bit. Look, I mean, again, not to get too granular, and we don't have a chart, but I mean, folks will look at Tesla and say, hey, that was one of the best earnings reports yeah. they've had in quite some time, but the stock had had a huge run off of about that 550 low, and it's obviously not trading particularly well on what were great earnings. Just sort of keep that in mind as we go over the next couple of days. And to this chart, you know, you are in this uptrend, clearly. You've also vacillated in between a number of times, and we're at the top end of the range, top end of the range into these meaningful earnings that we talked about. So just keep that in mind. 14,000 will be sort of support only, and not because it's a round number, 
because that's what's going to coincide with the lower end of that up channel that Dan drew. And obviously 13,200, the 200 day moving average, which again, we haven't seen seemingly forever is again in the crosshairs, not unlike the S&P 500, Dan Nathan, which brings us to our next chart. Yeah. I think this is really important. This is something that you flagged, the fact that we made an all-time high yesterday in the S&P 500, but it wasn't, the corresponding move in the VIX really wasn't there. We didn't make a new low in the VIX. What does that tell you, Dan Nathan? Yeah, it might be just because here we are in earnings season and with a lot of these stocks at all-time highs and the indices at all-time highs, you may see them investors, you know, like reaching for some protection. So that could be that. But I just think it makes sense to keep an eye on that. We generally don't like to chart the VIX, but it is interesting from a sentiment standpoint to, uh, to keep a keep an eye on that. We also know that seasonally, you know, this period in the markets can be volatile here. So again, any disappointments, we know there's a Fed meeting tomorrow. We know that we're going to hit on the stuff going on in China. Um, a lot of macro assets have been moving around. I think it's the major U.S. Um, equity indices are the ones that are just inching higher. Um, let's go to the Apple chart, guy. Apple reports tonight after the close. I know Microsoft does too. Combined, you know, again, four and a half trillion dollars in market cap or maybe a little bit more. Um, this chart is only interesting from the standpoint that it bounced off that 200 day moving average in May and literally looks like it went up 20% or so in a straight line here. So the largest company by market cap on the planet, expectations are really high. I just wanna make one important point. We don't talk about valuation too much on the macro setup. That seems to be a bit more of a micro thing, but Apple is trading at one of its richest valuations in decades, 28 times, forward earnings expectations that are only supposed to grow low single digits for the next couple of years. And I know that this is not something people care about when stocks are at highs, right? Um, but it's something that they'll go and look back if the stock had a meaningful correction or there's some sort of fundamental thing that causes this stock to go lower. And I don't know what that means to you. Um, you know, we sound like a little silly talking about high valuations in a low interest rate environment where these companies with these huge balance sheets and these monopolies are just killing it, but it's worth keeping an eye out for. When Apple was a growth stock, and it was a growth stock at one point, it was trading at a value stock valuation. I mean, yeah. Apple was at its trough was probably trading at 12 times forward earnings. Now that Apple is effectively a value stock, I don't think it really is a growth stock anymore. It's trading at a growth stock valuation. I mean, there's something doesn't compute. If you're looking for one number, Dan, I think you need to sort of watch and have a sort of a bullseye on it's the percentage of services revenue over the overall revenue. So that number's been a little bit south of 20%, high 18s, 19s or so. If that number would come in 22% or so of overall revenues, then I think the stock is off to the races. But if you don't see the continued growth in service revenues, yeah. then that valuation that you speak of is it's becomes somewhat concerning. And oh, by the way, go back to last quarter. It was a record quarter by any metric Stock really struggled to get through 138. You saw the subsequent move down to the high 120s. Just keep that in mind once again yeah. as we report earnings tonight, Dan. Nathan. Yeah, yeah. Last point I'll just make about these super caps and the and the runs that they've had over the last, let's say, two months or so. To me, I and I think we've said it on the show numerous times. I think that move has been very defensive, you know. Um, and we had rates going lower. We saw um, a lot of money come out of some high growth names, some cyclical names, some financials, that sort of thing. So to me, I think it was a bit defensive. I would not be surprised to see good results, good guidance, um, stock sell off, like you mentioned Tesla's doing right now. All right, guy, let's, as you say, 
slide it Earl, right? Let's mm-hmm. get macro Great here. Job. Um, that, what's going on in China is really interesting. I know that a lot of people, including us, maybe a month or so ago, might have been a bit dis- dismissive thinking that, you know, at some point, you know, the, President Xi just trying to flex a little bit, get some things in order here. But it seems like the hits keep on coming here. Um, you know, their stock market, at least in, in the ADR terms that we're seeing and the companies listed here, they're getting absolutely demolished here. And I think there's just, you know, the, the risk that there's a lot of credibility being lost for U.S. investors in these companies that are listed here, but also the ones who want to invest overseas. What's your take on what's going on here, Guy? Chinese play the long game. We don't hear. I mean, don't at me. It just happens to be true. You know, we look at things every five minutes. They're looking at things over a course of 50 years. And I do believe, and I'll say this, I've said it on the show, I've said it here, they're willing to lose the battles to win the broader war. And I think that's where we're in the midst of now. So this can last longer than people think. And we should really take a look at the FXI because this really tells the story. I mean, just take a look at this chart, Dan, and look at the precipitous drop that we've seen. And oh, by the way, we've seen it before. We saw it in 2015. We saw it at the end of 2017. To a certain extent, we saw it obviously in 2019-20 for obvious reasons, and we're seeing it here now. Um, I think they're willing to let things sort of go pear-shaped for a while to try to win the broader war. What that war is, I don't know, but I think they want to try to sort of curtail things on their end hopefully that hoping that it hurts us here in the states but what i'm fascinated by is the fact that you know we've had these huge sell-offs in the fxi and some of the underlying stocks hasn't made a dent in our broader market whatsoever people are absolutely looking past it and i'm not sure that's the right thing to do because when you see emerging markets the eem big component of obviously is chinese market i'm shocked that it hasn't created more volatility here and more um, moves to the downside in our broader markets, Dan Nathan. Well, you make a great point. And guy, when I look at this chart in the FXI, you see the overshot in 2015 to the upside, and then you see the overshot in late um, 2015, early 2016 to the downside. And remember, there were major growth fears in China. There was fears that asset bubbles um, were going to burst. And we definitely saw a lot of volatility in our markets during that period of time. So you make a great point. I'll just say this, um, you know, in the FXI in particular, um, the construction over the last, let's say, five or six years has changed a bit. The largest components now are Alibaba, mm-hmm. Tencent, Menuhin. So some of these tech champions, if you will, these are the ones that they're trying to get under control. I'll just say this. If you're looking to buy a dip in individual Chinese names, it might make more sense to kind of wade into the, the FXI, where 25% of the weight are those top three um, internet names, obviously e-commerce focus, that sort of thing. Um, you don't have the idiosyncratic stock risk um, if you will. So, you know, again, and I look at this chart and I see a series of higher lows, you know, from 16 to 2020. So we might be nearing an end of this. I can't imagine they can keep this going. Um, all right, guy, let's talk macro again. IF, IMF, the International Monetary Fund. They International, warned- hold on a second, then. International Monetary Fund. That oh. sounds like a really big organization, doesn't it? Massive. I don't know how much weight they pull. At least you oh, know because, this yeah, is this you're is discounting a, it now because they're they're <laughs> talking my language. Okay, but please continue. Well, I you know they warned that inflation could prove to be persistent, and central banks may need to act. Um, I think that's um, a funny headline here, okay, and that just, is. I just have, I, I don't yeah. want to interrupt you again, but would would persistent be the opposite of transitory? I'm I because I, I'm taking the SATs later today in case that comes up. Uh, yes, uh, I okay, think it would be, no, it, just, but, okay, but I think a big part of it has to do with how do you define 
transitory and how one might define persistent um, in, in, in time terms. All right, let's look at this thing. We know that this has really been the rate um, discussion. And we know that, you know, the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield kind of sniffed out the fact um, what the Fed had been saying that that these persistent price increases might prove to be transitory. I just used them both um, in a sentence. And, you know, I'll just say this, that, you know, technically the 10 year went down to that 200 day. It broke. Um, you see that little range that I have from the breakout in February, um, you know, 1% seems like good support, 1% to 1.2%. We might be going back in there very soon, mm-hmm. Guy. And, and again, I would say that, you know, you, you would probably be surprised that we're not seeing the sort of a commensurate equity volatility because of the volatility in the rates market. What do you do here? What do you do here if we can't overtake this 200-day moving average from a technical perspective and we get into that danger zone between 1.2 and 1%? Yeah, that's a great. Listen, obviously, the Delta variant is a big component of this. This global reopening trade that everybody's been banking on seems to be slowing a bit here. And it moved down to 1%, although historically lower rates are positive for equities. Maybe it's going to tell a much different story now. Maybe I've been looking at it entirely wrong, except I don't think I have. You still have an upwardly sloping 200-day moving average in the 10-year. Hasn't turned down yet. Again, 129-ish becomes a level that you have to watch. That's where we seemingly have failed at a couple times on the upside. We'll see. The inflation data has been hot. The move, the commensurate move in yields has not been. It's, it's fascinating to watch. And maybe it's just a function of the fact that U.S. yields here are attractive when compared to some of these global yields. And if you look at real interest rates, not to make your eyes glaze over, here in the United States are probably about as negative as they've been. I don't want to say ever because I don't have that data in front of me, but easily over the last decade or so, all things you have to watch. But great call by you, Dan, saying that for quite some time that you thought yields would move down to about the 1.15, 1.2 level. Yeah, I'll just say this lastly. You just mentioned Delta. It feels like we haven't kind of peaked in Delta yet. So you could see once we get by earnings season, um, the Fed is very likely to remain dovish here. Maybe rates have that dip to 1%, fears of the slowdown, or you know maybe this V in the economy that we've seen here in some other parts of the developed world ends up looking more like a W. And I just want to make one last point here, Guy. You remember what it was like in the post-financial crisis. We were obsessed with, you know, uh, double dip recessions, that sort of thing. And that was really driving a lot of action and a lot of risk assets. I just wouldn't um, be so sure that we don't get back into that sort of mindset in the back half of this year into 2020, especially as the global reflation trade is not going to be linear. And this virus is sticking around. And we have to remember that while our country is 50% vaccinated. It's going to take us probably another you know, three to six months to get up to 75%. But most of the world is about 30%, or at least the developed world. So we are going to have fits and starts in the global economy. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, this is not a political comment at all, but you wonder at this point when the vaccine has been accessible to pretty much everybody here in the United States. I mean, I don't want to blanket it, but you know what I'm saying. It makes you wonder, you know, the people that haven't gotten it, the vaccine yet when and if are they going to get it and are we going to get to the levels you just mentioned and that's a concern and i do think that's one of the reasons in terms of this macro setup why rates are stubbornly low and why this this recovery is tenuous now at best in terms of what we're seeing for the back half of this year what also is um sticky is the fact that chris vecchio has been listening to us for the last (laughs) 15 or 20 minutes he's had to stick around and, and submit himself to this but Let's bring in Chris Vecchio, senior strategist at Daily FX. You've heard what we say. 
I know the first chart you want to look at is the dollar, but sort of quickly, Chris, opine on some of the things you've heard Dan and I talk about over the last 15, 20 minutes. Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me, Guy and Dan, once more. Uh, before we begin, just want to remind everyone that Nadex does have its next boot camp coming up on August 10th, how to day trade the stock market. So while we're talking about what's going on with China and tech earnings, uh, presenters like Todd Rich and Dan Cook will help guide you through how to take advantage of these opportunities that we're discussing here. And one thing that's notable that you guys brought up was the impact of the Chinese equity meltdown. In fact, earlier this year, Chinese equities were trading at their highest level relative to the S&P 500. And in the span of about four months, we are now trading at our lowest level relative to the S&P 500. So this has been a brutal, absolute sell-off. Uh, with respect to the real yields conversation, it's one of those things that you know kind of just sticks in my craw for the U.S. dollar, an environment defined by you know, reduced U.S. Treasury yields, falling U.S. real yields, mm -hmm. and then reduced Fed rate hike odds, it, it doesn't give me much confidence in what's happening with the greenback. Now, I know you can make a reflation trade argument. Stocks are up, bond yields are down, dollars up, a lot of capital pouring into the United States, obviously. Uh, but still, the, the background doesn't cater to investors really wanting to take advantage of the dollar. And we're already seeing price action today, uh, somewhat deleterious with uh, price returning back into the dollar index triangle that's been forming since last September. So let's talk about that. I mean, you see you, you drew these trend lines. We obviously broke to the upside, but now we're testing it again. Is that just a false breakout? And are we basically, listen, I do think the dollar is going to test that 88 and a half level-ish that we bottomed out at. Uh, what are your thoughts here? I mean, I think you make a great point that everything we mentioned should be deleterious to the dollar, yet quite frankly, it's held in there really well. A dollar may be the you know cleanest shirt in a bag of dirty laundry right now, uh, or a nicest house in a bad neighborhood, however you want to put it. You know, two weeks ago when we last spoke, we talked about how the dollar may just chop around for a little while, and we're actually trading lower than we were two weeks ago. So uh, we've had new highs, we've had a return back within the consolidation. There's really not much direction here, and this delta variant being the wall of worry that it is, it just gives the Fed an excuse to withdraw uh, uh, on a later timeline. They're not going to announce anything quicker. It doesn't really matter what's going on with inflation. Jerome Powell is a lawyer by trade. Changing to the mm -hmm. average inflation target last year allowed him to create some precedent that they could look through what's going on in the inflation reading. So the bond market, usually right. I think that we're heading towards below 1% in the 10-year guy. Which is going to be really interesting to see what that means. I think I know what it means for the U.S. dollar. I'm fascinated to see what it means for equities, because as you know, historically, lower rates have been bullish. I'm not sure that's going to be the case this time, so we'll see. Great call by you. Obviously, gold's the next chart we want to look at before we get to Dan's Bitcoin, but gold's been, me the best word I can use is meandering, disappointing. We spoke, actually, Dan and I spoke to Michael Saylor yesterday, and he's of the belief that, you know, Bitcoin, um, the rise in Bitcoin's only going to lead to continued demise of the price of gold. We'll see if he's correct, but it's hard to argue with them, given the fact that everything that potentially could be bullish for gold has been out there, and yet gold goes nowhere, Chris. Yeah, one of my coworkers said it best this morning, you know, U.S. real yields at all-time lows, go home, gold, you're drunk. I mean, yeah. this should be the best environment for gold <laughs> and silver right now, and it's just not panning out. And so you really have to be cautious here. We previously talked about the 1835 level. We got close there earlier this July, but we never were able to clear that confluence of Fibonacci retracements. And so as far as I'm concerned, there are just better opportunities. It's hard to make the argument for gold right now when the NASDAQ is performing the way it is, when the S&P is performing the way it is. Uh, and to an extent, Michael Saylor is right. Bitcoin has been the anti-gold, so to speak. We've seen that they've traded on opposite sides of the spectrum when one is rallied, the other has fall, uh, fallen. And 
right now, there's really nothing to like here. If it can't rally in this environment, what will it take? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would just add something here, you know, and that's a great way to put it, Chris. Um, you know, it seems like the incremental dollar to gold is going to Bitcoin, even with Bitcoin down 50%, if that makes sense, right? Because I think the, the gold bugs from the 70s, the 80s, and, you know, in, in some other periods where there was kind of fears of inflation, I mean, they're kind of going away, if you will. And gold has always been this kind of low single digit allocations, at least here in the developed world. I know that central banks hold it for other the reasons and that might change going forward but if you're uh, you know an individual investor or an institutional investor here who maybe considers those sorts of allocations i think you're probably thinking about a crypto asset as opposed to um, gold and and i just think the performance over the last year from those highs in august you know to about now um, you know, they don't really make a great case for why you want to own gold. That being said, you know, when inflation fears were the loudest over the last few months here in the U.S., we also saw Bitcoin get cut in half, right? So, um, you know, it, it's it's a tricky one. Here's the chart here, Chris. I'll let you kind of speak to it. We've talked about it on the macro setup. Again, you know, this is less than what, a $700 billion or $750 um, billion um, market cap asset. So it's not on the grand scheme of things, guy, what is that low single digits percent um, of gold? It catches a lot of attention because I think it's caught the attention of some very interesting investors like Sailor, who's the CEO of a company who'd rather have Bitcoin on his balance sheet or his corporate balance sheet than dollars or gold. And then there's also a lot of very young investors who see the interest in it. The thing got ground down and made a new, what, six or seven month low, and then it like went up 20% in a straight line. To me, I think you still have that resistance up there at 40. I think the 200-day moving average is like 42,000. And then you're going to have support in that 28.5 to kind of 30,000 level. And maybe it bangs around there for a bit more. Chris, do you have any thoughts there, sir? I'm with you 100%, actually. I, I think that right now, when we take a look at what's going on with Bitcoin prices, we're in this distribution pattern between levels that we have seen historically this year in January and early February contained price action. You know, we've seen this news out of China as well, where they were trying to reduce mining capacity. And a lot of those mining rigs are being shipped elsewhere, particularly North America. Uh, I think that we're going to do for a little bit more range bound price action. Bitcoin is the risk asset among risk assets. It's a speculative vehicle where you're hoping for further price increases and on dips. I think it will be bought considering what's been happening over the past year. People will try to recapture that magic. But on the other hand, what's the argument for it to push beyond 42,000? Yesterday, we had the news that Amazon may be adopting Bitcoin mm-hmm. as a payments method, and then they denied it. And so uh, we are still lingering near the highs around 38,000 right now off of the you know, 40,000, 41,000 level that we had previously reached. Uh, but more chop here. I think more chop is necessary. And this news around Tether is really a concern, right? Uh, when we talk about the legitimacy of the cryptocurrency market, the DOJ's investigation into whether or not Tether has been properly holding funds, they've been sloshing around in the commercial paper market, which for those of us that remember 2008, commercial paper was a big reason why markets were so haywire. And that's that's a near-term concern for crypto. Chris, before we get to your crude chart, you brought a couple of currency charts. First one we need to look at is euro. Can you speak to what's going on here? Absolutely. Now, the euro is the largest component of the dollar index. So if we do think that the dollar index is going to go through a period where it can potentially pull back, the euro would be the prime place to look for gains. Uh, you know, even in a environment where U.S. yields are coming back, that may imperil something like dollar-yen, which I know we'll get to in a moment. But uh, for the euro, even though the ECB is saying that they're going to take a permanently accommodative stance, 
really how much more bearish or dovish can we get on what the ECB is going to do? They're not expected to raise rates through 2025. And so, you know, the worst case scenario for the euro in terms of rates may already be priced in. And with the dollar kind of reeling now with this negative real yield environment deepening, it presents a near-term opportunity for the euro to turn the corner. I'm not ready to say that this is the bottom just yet, but it does appear that we may be on the verge of some more substantive relief. Yeah, that 117 level looks huge. And that's the next one we need to look at. Obviously, you mentioned it. Let's take a look at the yen chart that you brought. Yeah, dollar yen, as we've talked about before, it really tracks yields very closely. And the fact of the matter is that even though we had a little bit of a near-term uh, falling bullish wedge here coming out of the rising bearish wedge, we haven't seen much price acceleration. In fact, if we go to that July 14th candle, we can see that we have a bearish outside engulfing bar or key mm -hmm. reversal, depending upon your perspective. So until we can punch through that high, I'm really not confident in dollar yen's ability to get off, off the floor. It's another one of these pairs. You know, we have equities at all-time highs, and dollar yen is not exactly corresponding to that move. The yen is typically uh, the inverse of whatever happening in risk, whatever happening in stocks, and it's showing some considerable strength, relatively speaking. So another reason why I'm doubting the dollar's viability right now in the near term. Yeah, it looks like that 112 level is going to be critical. If, if, in fact, we can get back up to it, you know, that, that could see a significant breakout. You mentioned that candle. And the last thing, you know, Boris Johnson's taking some heat with going on. But you got to, you got to look at, obviously, the, as we used to say, the sterling. Well, cable here is one of these pairs that I think was infected by Delta variant concerns for a, a few weeks. But the data coming out of the U.K. is incredibly promising. Words have meanings, Guy and Dan, and there's a difference between a vaccine and a medicine. A vaccine helps prevent illness. A medicine or cure helps treat illness. And so vaccines are just removing the tail risk scenario. It's like wearing a Kevlar vest. You know, you can still get shot and die, but chances are you're going to have a little bit greater chance of living through it. And so the UK is turning the corner. Deaths and hospitalizations are not tracking the increase in COVID uh, infection rates. That's promising. It suggests that the UK is not going to see another phase of significant lockdowns. If they do, it's not going to have a material impact on their near-term economic trajectory. And the British pound's false breakdown and then subsequent response at a significant Fibonacci level suggests that we may actually be looking for a rally back towards the yearly highs materializing mm -hmm. over the next few weeks. Yeah, and that's a great point, you know, about you know taking some of the worst case fears out as far as further lockdowns in some of these areas that are being hard hit. Um, let's look at crude last year, Chris. I know you brought a chart here. This is one that caught um, a little bit of volatility last Monday. I think it was down like eight percent or so, and that was really based on fears that the Delta variant would cause um, you know further slowdown in some of these uh, you know developed countries around the world, but also you know some of these very uh, low vaccinated rate companies uh, countries that just aren't tracking to the way that our, our economy had recovered. Yeah, so for crude oil, I mean, I think the big picture here is that OPEC delivered a 400,000 a barrel per day in, a production increase, whereas the market was expecting 600,000 per day. And so this persistent supply demand deficit that we've been in where uh, we have just not enough crude, not enough energy out in the world right now to sustain growth, this keeps a continued upward bias on crude oil prices. We did return back within that channel from the November and may swing lows here. That is promising for price action. And the price action last week, we had that beautiful morning star candle cluster forming right at the 23.6 Fibo retracement of the November 2022 uh, July, early July high. So right now, the way I see this, we start back within our uptrend. We're back on the upside grind. Uh, ultimately, the 76.98 level, which was, again, another bearish outside engulfing bar, a key reversal at the high for the year. If we can get through there, then it's all hands on deck continuing to march back into perhaps the 80s or 90s by the end of the year.
Yeah, I agree with you on that one. And Tim Salmon was a great ball player, the California Angels. I mentioned that because that salmon-covered shirt that you're wearing is beautiful. We always love when Chris Vecchio comes on, Dan Nathan. I want to thank him. I also want to thank you, Dan. Any parting words before we get out of here in today's macro setup? Yeah, I, I listen, just, you know, the equity markets here in the U.S., obviously very important here. They're at all-time highs or very near them. We're going to have the biggest companies in those indices report, and they're going to look good. But don't expect that, you know, good results and good guidance mean further gains. These stocks have come a long way in a very short period of time. Um, so a little um, pullback might be a very healthy thing for the back half of the year, especially as we can hopefully look forward to the Delta variant in the rearview mirror. But I also think... Christopher Vecchio, he's always um, a great guest with us. And, and that was a great shirt. I'm with you, Guy, on that. And I know you're Googling Tim Salmon right now, Dan, because I know you <laughs> never heard of him. But thank you, Chris Vecchio, senior strategist at Daily FX. Today's macro setup was brought to you by our presenting sponsors, plural, Nadex. Get ready, Dan. The leading exchange for binary options, call spreads, and what? Knockouts. Knockouts. You know who's a knockout? Open Exchange, man, they knock it out. They manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Dan Nathan, I will see you next week's macro setup will be in August. Have a great day, folks. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us.